teaching from God's Word, I'd like to ask you to pray with me that we would receive it well. Father, we need your grace. As we open up Scripture, Father, we, we need help to really understand it, but more than that, we need help to live it. And so we pray that you would minister to our hearts by your Holy Spirit this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, there's a popular phrase going around now called deconstruction, deconstruction of faith. Um, People are experiencing a quote-unquote deconstruction phase of their faith. And what they mean is, basically, they grew up in church, they've been exposed to church. Maybe this isn't your first time in church. You grew up going to church services. Maybe you grew up going to only certain services. This was maybe one of them. Uh, Maybe Christmas. Mother's Day, things like that, but you have a background where you were taught some truths about the Christian faith, and then you enter a phase where you're like, you know what, I'm not so sure about this, and you start going back and questioning some of the things you were taught, and they are calling this deconstruction, a deconstruction phase. And I think part of the problem is if you enter a time where you realize everything that you thought you knew about Christianity really isn't true, Your faith was never constructed in the first place, and there's nothing there to deconstruct. What you're living with is a false facade of what Christianity is. I want to try my best from a certain portion of Scripture to try to make the heart of the Christian faith clear today. For those of you who are still on the outside or you're struggling or you might be in a quote-unquote deconstruction phase, I hope that this constructs it for you. Those of you who are in And helps you communicate it to others. And to do that, because so many enter that deconstruction of faith phase because of some offense, something about God, something about the gospel, the good news, what we call good news, started tasting like bad news to them. It started feeling like it didn't sit right. Uh, Things about God that would make them cringe and go, I can't serve a God like that. And I'm like, you know what, let's just go to one of those passages then. (laughs) And one of those passages um, is Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, the content of Genesis 22, uh, you might be familiar with the the, the author, uh, Elie Wiesel. I think it was in uh, Messengers of God where he referred to Genesis 22 as a terrifying, a terrifying portion Uh, of scripture and the reason why it's terrifying is because God calls a man to take his one son and kill him what kind of God would do that a God that demands death sacrifice bloody that's not a God of grace so we don't want to be a church where we ignore ugly passages and only preach comfortable passages let's go right to it and construct it right from the beginning so let's hope and see that the Lord will teach us what faith is about from Genesis 22. Uh, If you have your Bibles, turn there, and and I hope that you read along with me, but I want to give you some background. We drop into the life of Abraham, and we just see this passage by itself. It's kind of like, you know, trying to show someone your favorite Netflix series, and you're just showing them season two, episode four. You know, like there's no background. They don't know who the characters are. What's the danger? What's the problem? Why is this climactic? I'm not invested in these characters, that'd be lame, right? You'd go, no, 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 this show is really good. 
season one, episode one. Let's go back, or at least give them a, a recap so they can enjoy that episode. And we do that with Scripture. We just drop in and eh, read portions of Scripture like it's not all connected. It is all connected. So let me try to do that really briefly, okay? Because a lot has happened in 22 chapters, even though we're still in the first book. You all might remember God created the heavens and the earth, created man. Everything's good, right? Everything's good. He called it good. So why do we live in such a messed up world? Right? Genesis was written to answer, that answer, to, to answer that question. Why do we see corruption and decay? Why do we die? Why is there sickness and cancer and diseases and viruses? Why is there crime and murder and theft? Why do we need locks on our doors and alarm systems? You know, why, do we, why do we live in a place like this? Genesis answers that. God created man and woman to worship him and just do what he says, to trust him as a father, as a shepherd, to, to do what he says. Eat this, but you know, don't eat that. And then Satan comes along in the form of a serpent, right? And does a couple things there, does a couple things there. Did God really say that? Bringing into question God's word. And then it's like Satan, the gears are turning his head. He probably schemed this. He's a master schemer, right? He probably planned this for a while. And said, you know, how am I going to get them to actually distrust God's word? And the way that he gets them to distrust God at his word is to think that they're more trustworthy than God. And he tells them, if you eat this fruit, you'll have his knowledge. You'll be on his level. You won't need to follow him around anymore. You won't need him to tell you, go this, don't go there. Do A, don't do B. You don't need him to figure out your life for you. You can figure out life by yourself. You don't have to hate God. You just don't have to follow him. You can just have the knowledge that you need. You'll know good and you'll know evil. God just doesn't want you to eat that fruit because he's scared. He doesn't want you to rise to his level. But if you eat that fruit, you rise to his level. Therefore, his word isn't trustworthy because it's not in your best interest. And so they ate. And when they ate everything that belongs solely to God, he's got a patent on peace. He's got a patent on joy. You can't use it outside of him. And so they fell into disobedience. God finds them in the garden. They're naked. They're ashamed. They cover themselves with leaves. But leaves aren't a real great covering. It's like patchwork. They try to string it together real quick. God provides animal skins to cover them. So you'll notice God doesn't say, hey, you shouldn't be ashamed. You don't need to be covered. No, you do need to be covered. But you need to be covered well. And that doesn't cover you. And the reason why the plant doesn't cover you isn't because uh, it's see-through. The reason why it doesn't cover you is because death has to happen. Where did God get the animal skins from? Something died. And there's your first sacrifice in the Bible. In other words, man fell. He's supposed to die. He told him, you'll surely die. But he's going to do something here. He says, Satan entered and, and kind of brought this thing. I'm going to defeat him and cover you. And the way I'm going to do that is through the woman. And through the woman, eventually an offspring will come, a seed will come, who will crush the head of the serpent, defeat death, and cover you for real. That's Genesis 3.15. 
Now, even veteran Christians oftentimes like, oh, cool story. Leave Genesis 3.15 behind and then press through the rest of the narrative of Scripture with that not in the background. That is the key verse, Genesis 3.15. The promise that God would send a seed, a son, who will come and defeat the serpent, defeat death, cover us for real so we can have forgiveness and life with him instead of death and separation. Then what God does is he announces, hey, I'm going to send this seed through a, a particular person now. Abram, what are you doing? I don't know. I'm wandering around. Come follow me. Where are we going? I'll tell you later. And Abram just follows God. So he's using someone who does follow him, does start out with trust in God, because you need to trust God the way that Adam and Eve failed to trust God, to, to be this, in this place where God wants you to be. But he's going to send the seed through him and tells Abraham multiple times, through you, I'm going to bring a son. And through that son, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Every nation in the earth is going to be blessed through that son, through that seed. Abraham and his wife both laughed at that on separate occasions. And the reason why they laughed is because he's really, really, really old. Okay? On top of that, not only is Sarah old, she's barren. She's never able to have kids. He's never had children. And then God finds him, and he's in his old age, and he's like, you're going to have a child. <laughs> God's like, don't laugh. I'm going to do it. And the reason why God did that is because I don't want you to think you did it with your virility, right? with your ability to have children and amass a wealth of inheritance and people and create a nation. You can't do it. You're barren, dude. But I'm going to do it. The emphasis is on me doing it. So that's why he chooses a barren couple, an old couple, that are just going to trust him for it. Now, here's what happens in the subsequent chapters leading up to Genesis 22 and why this is important. All of those weird episodes, if you've ever read through Genesis before and Abraham's life is weird, you're like, Sometimes he's a real man of faith. He rescues Lot. You know, he does things that are great. And then other times, you're just like, man, that was dumb. One of those episodes is when they go to Egypt and they meet Pharaoh. And he's afraid that Pharaoh's going to take Sarah because she's so beautiful. Just to let you know, the, the whole, when you're old, you're not beautiful. That's like an American update. Like, that's not. We need to kind of divest ourselves of that. She was old, very old, beyond the age of having children, and beautiful enough that he's scared Pharaoh's going to take her. That's just a little side extra note. You can dwell on that later. Hey, here's what I want you to do, Sarah. Lie and tell him you're my sister. Kind of a half lie, truth. They were half, she was a half sister. Because they'll kill me and take you. So just say, I'm your brother. Pharaoh finds out, I'll fast forward the story, he's, he's beside himself that Abraham would cause him trouble with Yahweh like that. Fast forward, and they meet uh, an, uh, a, a ruling figure by the name of Abimelech, and you think Abraham learned his lesson, and he does it, he does it again. I, honestly, if you've ever tried to read through the Bible, you read that, and you're like, wait a minute, you turn back, I thought I saw this episode already. What's going on? You're trying to go back. Like, what season are we in? It's the exact same thing. Instead of Pharaoh, it's Abimelech. It's the same thing. They're going to take you. 
Now, maybe Sarah said something. Maybe she was like, honey, we went through this before. Be quiet. You have to lie. It didn't work last time, Abe. But he's scared. Now, the reason why he's doing this is not just because he doesn't want to lose his wife. It's because if he loses his wife, he loses that promise of the seed. What he's really not trusting is that God said that through you and through Sarah, I will bring a seed. Well, if Pharaoh steals her, there goes the seed. If Abimelech steals her, there goes the seed. You see the real problem? The real problem is Genesis 3.15 isn't going to happen now if someone takes Sarah. This isn't just about saving a marriage, as important as that is. This is about that ultimate promise in Genesis 3.15, and God says, I'm going to do that through Abraham. Abraham's like, wow, that's awesome, but I don't really believe it because I'm scared that Abimelech's going to mess it up. I'm scared that Pharaoh's going to mess it up. Then the most bonkers episode, probably one of the craziest episodes in Genesis, is when they're waiting around, Sarah's like, hey, I'm only getting older. Why don't you go with Hagar and have a child with her. Now, what is, what is she thinking? Have a child with Hagar and then, like, kick her out, and that'll be our kid. Abraham's like, whatever you say, honey. And you're reading it like, it's a Jerry Springer episode or something. Like, what? <laughs> this is craziness. Why would you? That is crazy. Uh, how he convinced him. No, no, I'll be cool with Hagar. I'll be cool. No. He does it. And that's how they have Ishmael. Now, what is really happening there? A marital spat? The failure of love triangles? No. Genesis 3.15 isn't going to happen because God said the way that Genesis 3.15 is going to happen is I am going to miraculously provide you a child through Sarah. And what Abraham's doing is like, you know what? This is taking too long. Let's do it our way. I'm scared of Abimelech. Let me protect the seed my way. I'm scared of Pharaoh. Let me protect the seed my way. I'm scared of this taking too long. Let me do it my way. Aren't we back in the garden? I'm not supposed to eat this tree, but you know what? Maybe I have a better wisdom. Let me do it my way. And that's how we got into the mess. You're sitting there going, how how is this relevant? It is relevant to everything. Everything, any point of despair you're having now, any problem that you're having now, a sickness, a disease, a sin that you're struggling with, something that crushed you when you weren't a kid and you can't shake it. It shaped you in not so good ways and you don't know how to change that. All of the ugliness of this world has to do with this. That's what this is for. It's not episodes just to tell us how to protect our wives or how to have kids. It is the promise of the seed that is at stake. And if that promise of the seed doesn't come, Death doesn't get defeated. We don't get covered. That's the point. So he failed several tests, didn't he? He failed the test in Pharaoh's house. He failed the test when he met Abimelech. He failed the test when he was taking too long. They laughed about it. Now it's the ultimate test. Because now he's had the son through Sarah, and his name is Isaac. And then God says, now that you have Isaac, now that I finally put him and you see it, I'm going to test you by asking you to kill him. Now you might go, man, imagine killing your son. Yes, that's really crazy to imagine. What's really hard for us to imagine is the layer on top of that of not just killing your son, but killing the promise. 
of the only hope this world has to come up out of darkness and kill it. Because that promise in Genesis 3.15 is going to go away. If this son dies, it's supposed to happen through him. All the world is going to be blessed through him. And I want you, never mind, I want you to kill him. Just do what I said. Which is way crazier of a command than just don't eat this tree. (laughs) That's where we find ourselves in Genesis 22. Take a look. Read the first eight verses. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? God, uh, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. As we look at the details of how this begins to unfold, we see that God calls Abraham, commands Abraham to take his son, and look at the emphasis. You know, your only son, like which one? There is no which one. Your son, the only one you have. You know, the one you love. This is the first time the word love there is used in the Bible. 22 chapters before we get to the word love. And God saves it for that moment where you take that thing you love, and if you love me more than you love him, you kill him. It's interesting that God emphasizes it, raises the stakes on it. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, gives him the name like, yeah, I know which one. The one you've longed for, the one you've hoped for, the one you've told everyone around you. This is the one. This is Genesis 3.15. The one you love. And you're going to go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering Offering to whom? To me. You're going to worship me and be at peace with me through the sacrifice. And so Abraham rises, saddles his donkey, takes two of his guys with him, takes his son Isaac. We don't know a lot about Isaac except for the moment where he asked Abraham, his father, I see the stuff for the sacrifice. Where's the animal? Now, there's a couple options here. Either Abraham is lying. Oh, God will provide. He's going to provide you. Or 
something else is going on in Abraham's mind, and he's thinking, a sacrifice does have to happen. He understands why Adam and Eve were covered with skins, why sacrifice, why death has to happen for us to have life. He understands that justice piece. And maybe he's hoping that even if he has to kill Isaac, God will provide another way and that he can have Isaac back. In fact, the author of Hebrews tells us that is what Abraham was thinking. God is a truth teller. He's not a liar. And he said a nation is going to come through this boy Isaac, but I'm going to kill him. So how can the two happen? How can I kill him and he still lives to have kids? He must come back from the dead. If you read the author of Hebrews, he gives you that commentary and lets you in. Let's press ahead to see what happens here. Because what we find out is that this test, again, not just a test of his love for Isaac, which it is, but his test to believe that God is still going to fix this big problem of the world. He's still going to do that. If he kills Isaac, it feels like it's over, but he's trusting God's still going to do it. God will provide, he tells him. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And we don't know what Isaac is saying. Is he struggling? Are they fighting? Does he willingly do it? He doesn't give us anything about a struggle. Isaac just lies there on top of the wood. Verse 10 says, Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. Now here's the great interruption. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Let's pause there and just notice a couple of things here. Abraham is willing to go through with it. He lays his son on uh, the wood. And he's not going to burn him alive. He's going to mercifully kill him with the knife and then burn him. It's not a torture session, but death has to happen. So that's why you have the burnt offering language and also the knife language uh, so that it would transpire that way. And then you have God interrupting him, stopping him, and telling him he passed the test because he knows he fears God. Now, as you read through the Bible, you see that a lot. The call to fear God. And it's... It's difficult, I think, for us to really explain what that concept of fearing God means because there's two extremes that it does not mean. It doesn't mean you cower in fear and you can't, you know, uh, God is just out there with lightning bolts looking for people to strike. He's got a bloodlust and he's bloodthirsty to just kill people. And so we're afraid of him. But nor does it mean, oh, fear is just the Hebrew way of saying lovey-dovey, you know, cuddly He's a big teddy bear. No, it means fear. And the way to really understand it is God and his justice has to dole out death for those who 
departed from his life through rebellion and disobedience. Is that scary? Yes. Well, his justice is scary then. His justice is scary. And so he's seeing if Abraham has that kind of fear, that kind of respect, the fear of God that Adam and Eve failed in when they thought they would just do things their way. And let's look, let's be truthful. The fear that he failed to display every time he lied about his wife. The fear that he failed to display when he did the stupid Hagar thing. And now God tests him and he, he passes. He just does what God says. He trusts God with the promise. That's the entire point of the episode and all those many episodes leading up to this. Do you trust God for his promise to provide the answer to the world? The answer to despair? The answer to lack of joy? Do you trust that God provides it through Christ? Or are you like, Christ, cool story, but I've got this other stuff going on. That's the test. This story is not about what can you give up in your life to prove that you love God. Can you give an offering? Can we pass an offering plate? The person with the biggest offering passed the test the biggest. Who's willing to just give up their vehicles? Who's willing to take the retirement plan and send it to a missionary? Who's willing? Big sacrifice to prove God. That's not the point. The point is, do you trust God enough with the promise, the promise that he's given to the world to rescue us from our fallenness? Do you trust him that he does it through his son? Now, look what happens here. God stops him and doesn't say, ha just kidding, I'm not that mean. Hey, hey, stop, I can't believe you actually took me seriously. Like God is a big prankster. No, that, that's not what he says. He says, no, I, now I know that you fear God, but sacrifice still needs to happen. You'll notice God didn't say, you know what, forget sacrifice. Sacrifice is stupid. <laughs> that's, that's other gods, mean gods. You know, I don't demand sacrifice. No, sacrifice needs to happen. So he doesn't stop the sacrifice. He just stops who is sacrificed. So he stops the sacrifice of Isaac and says, Abraham, I love that you obey me enough to sacrifice Isaac, but you're not going to be the one to provide a sacrifice. I'm going to be the one to provide a sacrifice. You're not going to prove your love to me through the sacrifice of your one and only son. I'm going to prove my love to you through the sacrifice of my one and only son. You don't get to be the author of reconciliation. I'm going to be the author of reconciliation. Man isn't going to be able to be like, hey, you know what? We fell, but we climbed our way back to you through sacrifice. No, I brought you back to me through sacrifice. You're willing to sacrifice your son because I deserve it. I'm willing to sacrifice my son even though you don't deserve it. Who's greater? Who's the greater father? Who has the greater love? God will not be bested when it comes to a demonstration of his love. I will provide it. It's not the ram. It's what the ram represents. It's what Isaac represented. That one seed that's eventually going to come and take the death for us because animal skins can't cover us. And even if we sacrifice our own children or our own selves, we can't cover anybody. It has to be someone who doesn't deserve death to be the substitute. And so a ram is caught in the thicket and Abraham goes, see, oh, I knew it. The Lord is going to provide it. I knew it. That's why I told those guys down there. The Lord is going to provide it. Now, here's what I find very interesting. Uh, in Hebrew, you only have two tenses, perfect and imperfect. One is completed action. It's done. It happened already. The other one is either ongoing or continuing or will in the future. And he 
says here in verse 14, Abraham named the place the Lord did provide. No. He used the imperfect tense. The Lord either is providing or the Lord will eventually provide. And he says it twice. The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, you could say, well, he's just naming it because back when he was hiking his way up the mountain, that's what he had said, and that's what he told his servants, the Lord is going to provide. And then, look, he did provide. He provided the ram. But I think he's naming it now, looking forward, because he knows that ram doesn't cut it. If that ram was sufficient, he would never have to sacrifice again. You keep reading through the Bible, sacrifice, 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 all kinds of different, you got the burnt offering, peace offering, free will offering, remember all that stuff? The ram didn't solve it, didn't take care of it, it's only a picture. We need the real thing. And I think Abraham is looking ahead knowing the real thing is actually still going to come. And it's not that ram, it's what that ram represents. It's not my son, it's what my son represents that one and only true seed that's going to come from the Father and solve the world's problem, deepest problem of fallenness and estrangement from God. God will provide it. He will bring it. And he named the mountain on, uh, of the, uh, by the promise that God will provide the ultimate sacrifice that will do what? Look at the next paragraph, and, we'll, and then we'll close, 15 to 19. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So there's God channeling that promise for the world again. The enemies there aren't just those who would attack Abraham, although we see episodes of that. It's all those who come against God's people. And God's people is not just going to be Abraham's physical lineage, but that blessing extends to people in the world who come into an obedient relationship with God. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now, a couple quick things here. It's really interesting that back up uh, in verse uh, 16, he says he swore by himself. Why does he swear by himself? There's nothing else to swear by. When you were a kid, you're like, I swear on my grandmother's grave. Like, something bigger than me, something more important than I am. I swear on that, that I'm telling you the truth. God can't swear on anything bigger than himself, so he swears it on himself. And the promise that he brings to the world can't be brought by depending on anything greater than himself because he's the greatest. And so he swears by himself that he's going to continue this promise through Abraham. It's also interesting that he says, you have not withheld your son your only son, which he also said in uh, verse 12, when the angel stops him and says, now that I know that you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son, what's missing there? Your only son, you know, the one you love? Because that's how he said it the first time in that first paragraph we read. Your son, your only son, the one you love. Now it's your son, your only son, your son, your only son. And I think that's the author's way 
That's Moses' way of just kind of taking that love thing out because actually the highest focus of Abraham's love has proven to be God himself, not his child. That doesn't mean he doesn't love his child. It just means he demonstrated he loves God with a fiercer love than even his own son. And that's what God was after. That is worship. And for that kind of worship to happen, it has to happen on the back of sacrifice. And that sacrifice wasn't going to be Isaac. It wasn't going to be ultimately that ram. It was going to be Jesus Christ who comes. And you look at how this passage echoes Jesus. Isaac is the one and only son. He's the son of promise. It seems to us, like if we read it, he goes willingly. What is he carrying up with him, up a mountain, to die up on top of a mountain? And he's carrying the own wood of his own sacrifice up that mountain. But he didn't stay dead. He was good as dead. But he told, Abraham told the servants, hey, we're going to be back. And when did they come back? Look at verse 5. Look at verse 3. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, arose, and went to the place that God told him. And then the following events happened on the third day. Happened on the third day. You can fast forward at some point on your own to Luke 24, where Jesus comes along to disciples, and they're like really sad that Jesus died. Ugh, he was such a good teacher. You know, he was, he was such a good prophet, and I thought, we thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was the one. And Jesus is like, haven't you read the Old Testament? They're like, yeah, we've read the Old Testament. No, 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 no. Haven't you seen in the Old Testament that the Messiah was to come and be killed and rise on the third day? Haven't you read it? Now, I challenge you veteran Christians who've been in here, go home. And find me the Old Testament verse that says Jesus Christ is going to rise on the third day. There's not a specific, you can't find it in Zechariah. The Messiah, and three days, Jesus is going to rise again. It's not explicitly said. It's told through stories, like the story of Jonah. How many days was he in the whale? Good as dead? And then when did he get spit out, regurgitated by that fish or whatever it was, onto the shore? Three days later, that's when he came back. When did the widow get her child back? After three sessions of the prophet identifying himself with the child's death, taking that death off the child three times, and then the child pops up alive. I'm sure it's just coincidence, but Nick was paralyzed for three days and then started walking around. I don't know. God just likes to show off, don't he? Now Abraham says, I'm going to come back with my son knowing he's going to go kill his son, and he tells the servant, I'm going to come back. When God said, kill my son, that was three days earlier. When God spoke, your son needs to die, Isaac is as good as dead. And three days later, Isaac comes back. You might be like, I don't know, Pastor, you're kind of taking that too far. I again refer you to the book of Hebrews, where the author in the book of Hebrews said, Abraham did get him back three days later, figuratively speaking. And what I'm telling you is that this figures, prefigures the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because getting Isaac back didn't solve the world's problem. Getting Jesus back solves the world's problems. This is not a psychological fix. You don't come to Jesus because you've got some issues and you hope that he solves your issues. There's other groups you can go to for that. 
develop good habits of an effective person or whatever. This is, this is about the ultimate problem that we have. This is the problem as to why we have problems. And it's lostness and estrangement from God. That gap needs to be bridged. Death needs to be taken care of so we can have life with God. And Jesus Christ provides that. He echoed it in Genesis 22 in a special way to show that he's going to be the source of that grand demonstration of love. And that sacrifice so that we don't have to take it, our kids don't have to take it. Jesus Christ took it so we can have life with God through Christ.